0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. This is from Sharon Salzberg in a, I think it was an article in Lion's Roar. I'm not completely remembering which uh, magazine it was, but I think it was that. She says, when I was first in India and heard the Buddhist teaching on suffering, I felt as though I was being handed a precious gift. Finally, someone was speaking openly about how things really are. Suffering does exist. While there is great pleasure in this world, there is also a great deal of pain. There are wonderful times of coming together, and there are also partings and losses. I felt like I was hearing the truth for the first time, a truth that no one else had wanted to talk about. When any of us tries to close the door on this truth, we create suffering. In our society, the door is often shut because we are taught that suffering is shameful. We may close the door ourselves because we do not want to see our own suffering or reveal it to others. This denial of suffering often occurs in family life. Sometimes there is great suffering in a family, discord, conflict, insecurity, violence, And in an effort to shield children from the truth, a great silence descends, the silence of denial and of avoidance. If it is ever talked about, the suffering is repackaged and manipulated to look like something else. When talking about painful situations with children, skill and appropriate communication is called for. Yet it is often the case that they already know, they are already well aware of what is actually going on. But without external affirmation of what a child feels to be true, a split arises within, a conflict between what the child is told and what they know intuitively to be true. Children learn not to trust themselves, let alone trust their parents. Because of patterns like this, acknowledging the truth of suffering is an enormous liberation for all involved. I want to talk tonight about living an intimate, connected, engaged, and ethical life. This truth-telling by Sharon can remind us that awakening happens in the context of our daily life, with all of our imperfections, with our suffering, with our mistakes, with our families, and our bodies, and our relationships, our work our civic and social engagements. Our practice and awakening happens with and in our relationships. Our practice is about being interconnected. And this is not just my idea. Siddhartha had this pivotal insight on the eve of his awakening Prior to that, he and others at the time, as we have already talked about, were practicing in extreme ways and really just rejecting everything, trying to transcend and conquer rather than be it, be went with, and in. He was removed from people and disengaged from society. And I have to ask myself at times, and we should probably ask, all ask ourselves, are we making the same mistake that he did? But after his awakening, the Buddha was an engaged citizen. He was a radical truth teller, a bold activist. He learned to be with and fully in life with the earth in the body, with himself. He took retreat practice every year, and he was well-connected to other humans. And more than 2,600 years later, we're still revering the insights that he had back then. And thankfully, the Buddha offered a detailed path out of suffering, a fully integrated and complete path. And this is the Noble Eightfold Path, it's balanced. And it's meant to be practiced in its totality, not picked apart, taking this and leaving behind other things. So we need all elements of the path, wisdom, ethical training, mind training. And so these elements of the path, the wisdom part of the the path, First two, right view, or wise view, and right intention, or wise intention. And then we have the next three, the ethical conduct, or sila, part of the path. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. And these actions are all an expression of sila, or our conduct. And we might call that ethical conduct. But tonight, I'm going to focus more on this element of the path. But we might really think about this ethical conduct as a universal expression of love and compassion for all beings, a foundation of anyone's spiritual practice, really. And for those of us who've been on the path for quite a while, we can really see that at some point, there's no avoiding taking a look at how we're living our life as an expression of our spiritual life, our spiritual practice. And one of the most common ways to express Sila is by coming up with some or embracing some guidelines. And the precepts that we've been following while we've been on retreat are an example of that. And something not only that we can take up here, but that we can learn to work with, honor, and practice with throughout our entire life, even when we're not on retreat. It's something that we ask all teachers at Common Ground. We go over them once a year, and we ask all teachers to sign as an agreement that they're practicing these trainings. And then the third element of the Eightfold Path is mental discipline, samadhi and the last three elements of the path, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So it's an integrated path in two ways. One way, a path, an integrated path, because it's a path of healing that honors the impact of all of the sources of love and pain from the time of our birth and throughout the ins and outs of our lived experiences. And yet, it's a path that's beyond psychology it's about the understanding of, the deepest understanding really of our humanness and the deepest possible ways of letting go beyond even our imagination, what we can conceptualize. It's also an integrative, integrated path because it envelops the totality of our humanness. For example, we can look at our time in retreat, we can see that seclusion really supports the development of wisdom. We've all had these aha moments on retreat, these understandings that have come directly from our practice, this practice of letting go of other responsibilities, of other duties, and just giving ourselves over to this um, internal process. And then this wisdom, we can do good things with it. This wisdom informs our actions and helps us live a life with integrity. And when we live a life with integrity, we go to sleep at night with no regrets. And when we go to sleep at night with no regrets, we have a good feeling in our heart. And when we have a good feeling in our heart, it helps us want to continue to practice. We have this good feeling in our heart, it supports calm and a relaxed mind and that relaxed mind can continue to see clearly. So this path is really about more about resting in the questions than in the attainment of answers as well. We ask these questions in our practice what is this? What's this like? Can this be okay? Even asking yourself again and again, well, what's needed now? I'm suffering. What does this need? What can I do? And you've all experienced this, so you know that inquiry is inquiry is a part of practice. And an understanding of sila or our conduct really calls us to question to use this process of inquiry to question our intentions, our thoughts, our views, our beliefs, and to understand what these views, beliefs, intentions, thoughts are setting in motion, what actions they lead to, and what is the impact of that. We can't anticipate impact, but we can really use our practice to see, to get to know these thoughts, these beliefs, these views, so that we can have an idea, we can have a sense of our intentions and what they're setting in motion. And really so that we know how we're living and get a taste of how we're engaging with life. But we often don't see, we often don't notice our ideas, our beliefs. It takes a lot of patience. Have you noticed this? So far? Yeah. We might notice some agitation in the heart, and then 24 hours later, you know, the next day after we got a good night's sleep, we're like, oh yeah, holding on to something, or oh yeah, have this belief that I'm not good enough, or something like that. But it's not, thoughts and beliefs are really slippery, they're not obviously noticed. We notice our actions. That's easy to observe, but the subtlety of the beliefs are really, uh, take some patience. Except when we're in conflict. <laughs> I notice this in my relationship with my partner. It's one of the things I appreciate about intimate relationships is that it's really hard to avoid crashing into each other. Our views colliding, our intentions not lining up.
1: Right.
0: There's a great book, it's called Listening to the Heart, a Contemplative Journey to Engage Buddhism by Tanisara and Kittisaro. these two wonderful uh, teachers that I've been really inspired by in recent years. And they were both students of Ajahn Chah, monastics, Tenis, Tenis, I think Kittasaro was a, a monk for maybe a little bit longer, but Tanisra was uh, in robes for 12 years, and they're really they tell a lot of stories about Ajahn Shah. And one of the things, a story that's in the book, he came to visit them where they were um, living in a monastery. I think it was Chidhurst, but I'm not quite sure. And when he got there, he said something like, "Well, how are things going?" Some basic question, and they responded like, "Oh, things are really harmonious." Going well, and he said, Well, there's no wisdom being developed that way. (laughs) Yeah, it just really points to how, like, the relational aspect of practice is really important, but we tend to not think about it like that. We tend to want to avoid conflict, we tend to see it as a problem, even our, especially our internal conflicts, right? These, like this churning of the heart, this suffering, this dukkha that's there, we tend to think that we've we've gone wrong when we feel that. And we are on the right path when there's some pleasant, some harmony there, some congruence, some calm, tranquility, floating along, feeling pretty grateful. You know. And those are really beautiful moments. And what if we were also appreciative of the moments of conflict? both internally and in our relationships in our communities. And it's definitely true that we benefit from some ethical frameworks, some agreements when we're entering conflict, right? Some understanding between us as humans of how we at least intend to show up so that we don't, so that we can trust and enter into relationship with some authenticity. But if we only avoid conflict, then we're missing out on a big part of our learning. We're we're missing out on the path, really. We're missing out on the totality of the path. And it's often this individualistic orientation that makes us want to avoid conflict, this orientation that uh, we're either good or bad as individuals, rather than an interdependent orientation, that conflict in relationship is important and necessary for our awakening. If we come to look at conflict in that way, then I can be appreciative that we're having this tension, right, because I'm able to see more clearly the views and beliefs in my mind that are guiding my actions. And I can also see how your views and beliefs, that you feel just as strongly about them as I do, and how that is just an expression of nature. We can see how similar we are, not in terms of our lived experiences, but in terms of the the mind elements. I mean, is there anybody in this room that doesn't get angry, or doesn't feel sad, or doesn't feel ashamed, We all, those mind states, all cycle through our hearts as human beings. They're not specific to us. So when we suffer because of being absorbed in one of those difficult places, then it doesn't make really much sense for us to feel ashamed or try to avoid, like Sharon Salzberg was saying in that beautiful piece, that quote that I read in the beginning, it doesn't really make sense to pull away from that and not share that, because it's something that can actually help us understand nature, help us understand the characteristic characteristic of, of anatta. That's not something, this characteristic of not-self, is not something that this intellectual mind can easily understand. It doesn't really make intellectual sense. But in relationship, when we start to notice, you know, oh, I have beliefs and I hold strong, I cling to them. Oh, you have beliefs and you cling to them. It starts to actually make a little bit of sense. And going back to that individualistic orientation, this idea of good or bad, we come by this quite naturally. It's one of the primary white Western beliefs. That's embedded in all of our systems. So even if we buy into it or don't buy into it, it's like the air we breathe. And like most views, most beliefs, we're just breathing it in in a way that it's invisible to us. We don't see it. It takes a lot of patience to see these beliefs. And there are many lists of sort of values or beliefs in white supremacy culture. And here are three that I picked out. We'll see if we can relate to them. We value perfectionism over engagement for the sake of learning. Try to get things right. Mistakes can get us shunned or punished. And we tend to value expediency over process which makes it difficult to be inclusive. And we tend to value individualism, like I've already said. Competition is a higher value than cooperation, and consensus decision-making is almost unheard of, just as a general value. You may be going like, hmm, I'm suspicious. I'm not quite sure about this. But defensiveness is also on the list. (laughs) (laughs) But just go with me for a second, and think about the ways we think about practice. Have you, over the course of the last few days, ever wanted like perfect calm? Have you ever yearned for that? Like, ah, I just want that samadhi experience. Or, I want that samadhi experience right now, right? I just had it yesterday, and now, This is not a linear path, so I don't really like that, and I'd like to have it again soon, please. Or I'm just going through this practice, and nothing's really happening. An insight sometime today would be nice. (laughs) Or how about the comparing mind? Come into the Dharma hall, you look at everybody else, they look like they're so serene and blissful, and you're in total dukkha mode. And you're thinking, what's wrong with me? So can we see how these beliefs are just kind of embedded into the way we view things and including view our practice? That perfectionism, wanting to hurry and have an insight, competition, comparing ourselves to each other. So it's not only what we're aware of that matters, it's also what we're not aware of. So using our awareness practice to you know come to understand to wake up to the views and beliefs that guide our actions because there is an intention behind every action. Well behind I guess behind is the right word. Is that the right word? Yeah. Precedes, better word? An intention that precedes every action. And one of the mistakes that we make when we try to internalize the teachings of ethics or sila, and especially around the precepts, is that we can think about them as individual rules. We have to do this, we have to do that, rather than embracing these trainings because they lead us in the direction of understanding how interdependent, how connected we actually are. And remember that we this happens naturally because we're just taking things in. We're just breathing in the values that we are swimming in in our lives. Some of you, have, like I, have just been really um, informed by and grateful for, the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. He's dismantled some of the patriarchal structures, especially in the order of interbeing. And I think one of his teachings on interdependence is one of his most clear. So the five precepts, I want to talk more about the five precepts. And in particular, I want to read the way that he has described them and see if it helps us understand how Integrated, we can approach working with the precepts in an integrated way with our in our whole lives, in our in our families, in our work, in our civic engagements, and in, in everything. Right? It's not just a rule that we need to follow, but something that benefits all beings when we agree to practice and train in this way. So the first precept: refraining from destroying living creatures. He talks about this as being a reverence for life. I am of the nature to age. My eyes are aging. (laughs) (laughs) Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating the insight of interbeing and compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to support any act of killing in the world, in my thinking or in my way of life. Seeing that harmful actions arise from fear, anger, greed, and intolerance, which in turn come from dualistic and discriminative discriminative thinking, I will cultivate openness, non-discrimination, and non-attachment to views in order to transform violence, fanaticism, and dogmatism in myself and in the world. Can I get a wow? (laughs) It's a lot, right? It's a lot there. I mean, it's like everything. And the next one, refraining from taking that which is not given. Think about this as stealing, not stealing, right? Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to practicing generosity in my thinking, speaking and acting. I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. And I will share my time, energy and material resources to those who are in need. I will practice looking deeply to see that the happiness and suffering of others are not separate from my own happiness and suffering. That true happiness is not possible without understanding and compassion and that running after wealth, fame, power, and sensual pleasures can bring much suffering and despair. I'm aware that happiness depends on my mental attitude and not on external conditions, and that I can live happily in the present moment simply by remembering that I already have more than enough conditions to be happy. I am committed to practicing right livelihood so that I can help reduce the suffering of living beings on earth and stop contributing to climate change. Okay. Yeah. And the third one, refraining from sexual misconduct. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. Knowing that sexual desire is not love and that sexual activity motivated by craving always harms myself as well as others, I am determined not to engage in sexual relations without love and a deep, long commitment made known to my family and friends. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect prevent couples and families from being broken by sexual misconduct. Seeing that body and mind are one, I am committed to learning appropriate ways to take care of my sexual energy and cultivating loving kindness, compassion, joy, and inclusiveness, which are the four basic elements of true love, for my greater happiness and the greater happiness of others. Practicing true love, we know that we will continue beautifully into the future. And refraining from incorrect speech, he calls loving speech and deep listening. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others. I am committed to cultivating loving speech and compassionate listening in order to relieve suffering and to promote reconciliation and peace in myself and among other people, ethnic and religious groups and nations. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering. I am committed to speaking truthfully using words that inspire confidence, joy, and hope. When anger is manifesting in me, I am determined not to speak. I will practice mindful breathing and walking in order to recognize and to look deeply into my anger. I know that the roots of anger can be found in my wrong perceptions and lack of understanding of the suffering in myself and in the other person. I will speak and listen in a way that can help myself and the other person to transform suffering and see the way out of difficult situations. I am am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to utter words that can cause division or discord. I will practice right diligence to nourish my capacity for understanding, love, joy, and inclusiveness, and gradually transform anger, violence, and fear that lie deep in my consciousness. And the last one, refraining from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness. He calls nourishment and healing. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to cultivating good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society, by by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I will practice looking deeply into how I consume the four kinds of nutrients namely edible foods, sense impressions, volition and consciousness consumption. I am determined to not gamble or use alcohol drugs or any other products which contain toxins such as certain websites, electronic games, TV programs, films, magazines, books and conversations. I love it that he just like you know paints a very wide <laughs> <laughs> picture. I will practice coming back to the present moment to be in touch with the refreshing, healing, nourishing elements in me and around me, not letting regrets and sorrow drag me back into the past, nor letting anxieties, fear, or craving pull me out of the present moment. I am determined not to try to cover up loneliness, anxiety, or other suffering by losing myself in consumption. I will contemplate interbeing and consume in a way that preserves peace, joy, and well-being in my body and consciousness, And in the collective body and consciousness of my family, my society, and the earth. I'm just taking all of that in for a a moment. It's very comprehensive, isn't it? And a tall order. (laughs) And we might find ourselves like, "Mm, I'm not quite sure about that one. And this is the really good part of ethical training. Is having that inquiry and keep continuing to ask questions to find our way forward with our intentions, thoughts, and actions. And I really appreciate about these the way he has framed these precepts um, in terms of interconnection. Because it stimulates this, this like burning question in my heart. How do I belong to you, and how do you belong to me? And how do I keep alive that sense of belonging, that sense of connection? It's easy for me to bring to mind, and easy for you, probably, to bring to mind people you love and care about, and to think and feel into the ways in which you belong to each other, but not quite so easy to belong to the world, or for the world to belong to us. But I wonder how I and how we would live differently if we really knew that our awakening was tied up in each other, that our practice was always meant to be relational and that we actually do belong to each other. I wonder, I ask myself quite often, how would I live differently? A couple of days ago, when we had that bad ice, differently than the bad snow and ice today, (laughs) (laughs) but I was driving here, and um, I heard on the radio that a metro transit suspended the bus service. And then a few minutes later, I drove by a bus stop, and there was a person at the bus stop. And as I drove by, I thought, well, I should stop and tell her that there's no bus service. And then I thought, I should stop and give her a ride. And I didn't do either of those things. But that there was this pain in my heart all the way to common ground, like, oh. Why didn't she belong to me? If it were my wife sitting at that bus station, I would have pulled over. Without I would have circled. I would have come back 15 minutes. If it were my niece, I would have done that. If it were my friend, I would have done that. But for some reason, the person at the bus stop did not belong to me in that moment. So that feeling of regret and that, you know, It's really Hiri and Otapa, that feeling of regret, Hiri, and that desire, that deep desire to take care of someone else, Otapa, that really kind of inspired me to make a commitment not to do that again. That if I drive by and I see someone in need and I have the heart to do something about it, then I'm going to just make an exception to my rules. I'm going to be late, or I'm going to do it. needs to be done. Some time ago, some of you know Ayo Yutunde. She's a teacher here. She practices and teaches both here and at Clouds and Water. It was one of her first days at Common Ground, or first weeks or month at Common Ground, and she posed a question publicly. Is this a community in which you would die for each other? And that question has never left me. And I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that that, con- that willingness of the heart to belong to you and for you to belong to me is strong. And I, I want to be that community. I want us to be that community. And we have over 3,000 people on our mailing list at Common Ground and so many people I don't know, and I wouldn't recognize. But I recognize you, and if I saw you at the bus stop, I would pull over, and I would tell you. So what makes me think that, you know, I was just thinking about the woman at the bus stop, and why didn't I assume that she was mine also, that she was a community member? Like, what makes someone outside of my community There's another sweet story in the book that I was referencing by Tanisra and Kittasaro. They uh, have a monastery in South Africa. And were part of the story, they were just talking about the immense challenge, challenges there, so much racism and conflict in the community. And it was just overwhelming. And they took a couple of days to go to the ocean and rejuvenate, process some of that which had been happening, and be with each other. And Tenisera is telling the story of being activated by something, and a lot of old childhood patterns and wounds surfaced. And just, she really came undone in an extreme way, just contemplating suicide and called it a very dark moment in life. And her beloved husband was there. And as she told the story, all he did was hold her hand as she cried and wailed. And sometimes that can be enough. Sometimes we can show each other that we belong to each other in just these fairly simple ways by not Layering our beliefs and views so that our natural compassionate heart is hidden from each other, and to really allow each other to be in our brokenness without shame of our suffering. I mean, it might not, it might seem like hmm, you might be thinking, I'm not sure if I would die for one of the 3,000 people at Common Ground. But is that possible? To sit with someone else, to listen, to hold their hand, to make sure that they know, like you know, that suffering is not something to be ashamed of, that suffering is a human experience. It doesn't matter if it's the suffering of aversion for no good reason or the suffering of a childhood wound, but the experience of suffering is a universal one. this talk wasn't meant to really to answer any questions for us, but to stir the process of inquiry a little bit, just to get us to reflect on ethics and tensions that lead to our actions, an ethical frame for our life that can support us in our relationships and our community, in our communities and our families and our workplaces maybe. And to help us to think about the things that we do, the actions that we take, as not rules for ourselves, but more of gifts in the service of our collective awakening. And it's the last full night of the retreat, so I wanted to leave a little bit of time for your reflections, questions, or response, if you have anything to add or complain about. <laughs> it's your turn. Thank you for your kind attention.
2: Uh, I'm Carolyn. She, <laughs> hers. That was just beautiful. Shelly, just beautiful. Um. Gotten so much from this retreat, and I'm not even going to start because it's just so much. But I think one of the main things I've gotten is, and it seems so um, like, of course, but I have felt so much shame over. Um, I've had a very colorful life, um, a lot of early trauma, a lot of early loss, and. One of my best friends from college, um, she has said, you know, you have had the hardest life of anyone I know. And I chuckle because I think it's so um, untrue. Um, but when I listen to people here, and especially as, as well in the intensive we just went through, and just the sharing of people um, talking about their suffering without feeling shame, has helped me so much. I can't even tell, you know, can't even express it, how much has helped me. Um, And I tapped into some shame here uh, while I was on retreat um, yesterday. And um, it was so uncomfortable. I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave. And I was so shocked by my reaction. I went and took some time alone. Um, And I was realizing just sort of, how that's played out in my life um, for a very long time and how often I have left places, people, situations that were really good for me because I took it personally Um, and that it was just causes and conditions um, from the people that I felt were um, causing that shame in me. So just really grateful and I have cried so often this week you know over these days too just out of this deep gratitude um just for the teachings just for what I'm hearing I'm a truth teller in my family and there's there was always shame about that um and you know just so many times told to be quiet um so just really really appreciative Thank you
0: It's not a juicy topic for anybody but me and Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're behind you.
1: Um, well, I just want to say to me, it's overwhelming, and um I mean, I think you covered I think you know that it that a person could have that reaction or that it's a question and not an answer, but um. I think that's kind of where I'm at. It's like, what with that can I do? And there's a number of things I can do, um, but you know, the first impact is just, geez, woof! It's just so overwhelming.
0: Yeah. I can have that feeling, but remember that it's not a responsibility we have to share on our own. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not a responsibility we need to have on our own. It's a shared know what how we create our communities our families our you know everything that we see is an expression of the thoughts and ideas in our heads Mm -hmm. right so we're co-creating something together we just have now more information to co-create something that is more workable than the mess that we see and feel day in day out
3: um my name is Andy I use he him um, so, just a reflection on uh, something you shared, Shelley, um, that sparked a crossover of another teaching that I heard from the late great Ram Das, that I took to very strongly this year, and who I believe is uh, an ally to the Insight um, teachings. And he spoke on um, my heart is fluttering in trying to even paraphrase Ram Das. Um, So I may be butchering it, but uh, he did speak on at least one aspect of our spiritual experience as um, being so deeply personal, and that uh, a fault of a lot of dogmatic religion is trying to socialize that and normalize it. Um, Yet, what you brought up, which is also true... Um, is that our awakening is tied up in each other there is that truth in our um, in our um, uh, I wrote down exactly what you said um, our practice is meant to be relational um because and again i 'm paraphrasing I think this is also what Ram Das was getting to because those communities in in religion and everything are based on that truth, but when we when we try to make it too normal or too uh, we deny that personal experience of it. So, like with many things, I think it's both. It's that it's that sharing in such a personal experience that sometimes we can't necessarily put to words, but then that it is ultimately going towards the same truth that we do share. We all have our own path to it, and so as we awaken to that supporting each other with that is um is is meant to be relational so it's just something i thought i'd share thank you you, Shelley. um
4: you're reminding me of uh what i've found so hopeful and inspiring about uh buddhism um i i have a mind that has tried to figure things out and uh You know, a political science major and in in activism and stuff. And um, it's so complicated. The world is so complicated, you know? And when I came across that, this idea that, um, first of all, that compassion and love is what the answer is, that it's actually what can make it work best. You know, and then also that it's relational. Um, uh, that's and the way that Tichnorhan says it, I've got to get that and and post it in my room. Um, it's I, I used to I used to separate problems into two parts. Um, the first part is like, what's this, what would work? What's the solution? And the second part is implementation. Well, implementation is mind boggling for this, but I my mind gets that this would work. And that's wonderful because uh, it's enough for me to have a vision that's clear and true. So, uh, thank you, thank you for sharing that.
0: And remembering that having a vision is a gift, right? Taking these in and even just taking the precepts or wanting, having an intention to have an ethical life is something, right? I have a friend who said that she takes a walk when she takes a walk with her partner. She they pick up trash together. But they don't feel compelled to pick up all the trash. They just pick up a little bit of trash, they fill a bag, and they throw it away. So it's like we don't have to think. It can feel overwhelming if we think, oh my gosh, I have to do all those things? I have to do them like that? Like, how in the world will I have time for all that? But remembering that our the gift of our presence is enough. Our purifying our intentions is enough. Our practice, our silence, it's enough. So our, we're already doing we're already doing it's not like we don't have to layer that trip onto ourselves like I have to do more I have to do more it's not like that it's like just continuing to practice and live a mindful life bring awareness to our our life in all ways and notice the beauty that comes out of that and how that is a gift to each other that is a gift to other people that is I believe what Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about, right? bringing our awareness to the beauty that we're offering to each other currently like now listening and thinking wondering how this matters to you.
1: I've been practicing for a long time, relatively, about half my life and Somehow, the understanding or the of interdependence got conflated with a distorted belief that how I showed up could really make a difference in conditions that where there were limitations, and I'm in the process of recognizing that and ending a marriage that's over 45 years old? So yes, and (laughs) yes, how we show up matters. And there are very real limits to what we can influence in this world. I'm humbled. (laughs) Um,
5: Similar to what Wendy just spoke about, um, I'm very much still learning how We belong to each other without destroying ourselves. Um, Those who are in my small group have heard me go on and on all weekend about this pain in my shoulder that won't (laughs) go away, Um, like a burning nerve pain, and started off trying to sort of ooch and scooch and work it out and then got really gentle and tender with it and was like, okay, it's okay that you're here and you're not a problem, and it just sort of phased in and out for the last couple of days. And then just tonight... Um, finally got a little bit more like strict in your voice with it and was like, Hey, stop trying to control things you do not have control over <laughs> your depression, your anger, other people's feelings, your approval rating. <laughs> and it just backed off and disappeared and it hasn't come back. And maybe it will. Um, But that felt pretty profound.
0: And this is, we have our intentions to offer and the gift of our wholehearted action, but we don't have any say over the response like you're both pointing to. We don't have any control over much. So Mark likes to use the phrase wholehearted engagement without attachment, which I use now, too. But that's a, it's a great um, aspiration to engage wholeheartedly in our lives because it feels good and it's the right thing to do and to let go of the possibility of eradicating something. Right? because We don't have any say over that. But that wholehearted engagement without attachment actually keeps us in the game. Thank you, everyone. We'll leave it here tonight.